friends and welcome to the first episode of Thinking While Talking. Let your character or moral disposition be free from love of money, including greed, lust, and craving for earthly possessions, and be satisfied with your present circumstances and with what you have. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you nor give you up or leave you without support. And he says, I will not three times in any degree leave you helpless nor forsaken, nor let you down. Relax my hold on you. Assuredly not he will not. So we take comfort and are encouraged and confidently and boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be seized with alarm. I will not fear or dread or be terrified. What can man do to me? That was Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Have faith in the Lord and he will provide. It's the basic moral of that message. I want to thank you for coming along today and listening. But today I shall be reading a book made by S.D. Gordon in the copyright of 1914, which is in the public domain and a classic, you might say. And this book was provided by um, glutenberg.org. And this ebook is for the use of anyone, anywhere, at any cost, and with almost no restriction whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away, or reuse it under the terms of Project Glutenberg license included with this ebook or online at www.glutenberg.org. The title of this is Quiet Talks on the Crown Christ of Revelation. Here's the prefix. Crowning the Christ is an intensely practical thing, whether taken in a personal sense or worldly sense. He has been crowned in the upper world. With wondrous patience and graciousness, he pleads for the personal crowning of our lives. Someday no one knows just when he will begin to act as a crowned Christ in all the affairs of our life. The initiative of all action today on the earth is in man's hands. Someday the initiative of governing action on earth will be in the hands of the crowned Christ, even while the personal initiative of each man's life will be still in in our own hands. God is intensely practical. Jesus was never concerned about speculation or mere discussions. He was too intent on helping people. The Bible is wholly a practical book. It is concerned only with helping us. It does not tell us all the truth there is. We shall be constantly learning more in future life. But it does tell us, it does tell us that we all need to know evil. And its purpose in telling us what it does is wholly practical to urge us to the right choice and to live that square with the choice. This is the purpose that decided just what truth should be told in the book. There is one book of the 66 devoted wholly to this subject of the crown of Christ, the revelation of John. Every one of these books touches him at some angle and defines its deepest meaning in what he was to do and did do and yields up to its secrets only under the touch of his hand. But this book and the 
closing and climax of all, the dot of the end of the inspired thread, this deals wholly with the action of the crown of Christ. No book of the 66 has seemed so much like a riddle and said so, many a guessing. And without doubt, much of its meaning will be clear only as events work themselves out. The events um, will prove the only expositor of much. But it is with the deep conviction that this is wholly a practical book, written wholly from a practical point of view and concerned wholly with our practical daily lives, that I have ventured to take it up in a series of simple, wholly practical, quiet talks. And it is only this side of this teaching that will be dealt with here. The book is a street leading into a true overcoming life that Master would woe us to. It's the only after many years study of this book of Revelation and a special study that past three years and a little more that I have ventured to put these talks together and now they are sent out with the earnest humble prayer that others may find some little practical help in prayerful reading as I have found much prayerfully studying under the master's gracious faithful touch part one of the Christ crowned the fact quote when God sought a king for his people of old he went to the fields to find them a shepherd was he of his cook and his loot, and a following flock behind him. O oh, love the sheep, O oh, joy of the root, and the sling of the stone for battle. A shepherd was king, the giant was not, and the enemy driven like cattle. When God looked to tell his good will to men, and the shepherd's king's son whom he gave them, to shepherds made meek a caring for sheep, he told of a Christ sent to save them, of love of the sheep, oh watch in the night, and the glory in the message of the choir. Twas shepherds who saw their king in the straw, and returned with their hearts all on fire. When Christ starts to tell of his love to the world, he said to the strong before him, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, and away to the cross they bore him. O love of the sheep, O blood, sweat of prayer, of man, O man, on the cross, God forsaken. A shepherd has gone to defend all alone, the sheepfold by death overtaken. When God sought a king for his people, for a, he went to grave to find him. And a shepherd came back, deaf, dead, in his castle, and a following flock behind him, O love of the sheep, of life, from the dead, of strength of the faint and fearing, a shepherd is king, and his kingdom will come, and the day of his coming is nearing, End quote. Coronation Gift Christ is crowned, not in any vague, far-fetched meaning, but in the plain common sense meaning of the word he is crowned for crown means to put in place of highest power with full right to exercise the power at will and 
the crucified Jesus went up the Oviet day, Oviet day, before the astonished eyes of the disciples into the sightless blue on the cloud. He received, has, he was received in the upper world by the Father, and he was lifted up into the place of highest honor and greatest power, and he sat down at the right hand of his Father. He had said it would be so, breathing the air thick with bitter hate on the night of his trial, he had quietly said to the Jewish rulers that even so it would be, bringing at once about his person the bursting of the storm of hate. Now his unfaltering trust in his father has its sweet reward. The Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, the birthday of the church was the gift of the crowned Christ, the rushing sound as a mighty wind that filled all the house, the tongues of flame plainly seen, the bold talking to the crowds of foreign Jews of God's mighty power and faithful witnessing about the crucified Jesus in the city that hounded him to death. The convinced crowds openly declared at the peril of their lives their belief in the despised Jesus. They strangely wear unselfishness even in money matters and the winsome graciousness of spirit that mark not only the inner circle, but these greatly increased crowds. All this said one thing in clear, unanswerable tones of unmistakable power. Christ is crowned. Christ is crowned. For the sending down of the Holy Spirit was the act of the crown Christ. In every touch of the Holy Spirit's presence with entrusting hearts, the sweet peace, the quiet assurance, the longing of purity, the drawing away to prayer, the hunger of God's word, the intense desire to have others saved, the passion to please the wondrous God of ours. All these simple marks of the Holy Spirit presence in our hearts all tell us and each tell us in unmistakable tones that Christ is crowned. But this wondrous spirit within the gift of the crown Christ. When Jesus went up from, from the earth holding as his sure captive in the captivity of suffering and death to which he had with such great strength yielded, he received gifts coronation gifts the Father gave him all. He gave him the disposal and control of all. This was the crowning. And in his great outreaching love, Christ received these gifts on behalf of men, his blood brothers, and at once he gave to men, to trusting disciples, the all-inclusive gift, the Holy Spirit, his coronation gift. So God came anew to dwelling with men as originally planned in the beginning. I want to say, um, add on to that um, part when it says, so God came anew to, to dwell with men as originally planned. He means as originally planned at the beginning. When Adam and Eve were created, created they were supposed to obey God. They didn't obey God once they listened to Satan and eaten of the fruit, knowledge of good and evil which was originally planned was for them to build up the world and his presence and his likeness and whatnot. And now the 
had his back to where he was supposed to be, or kind of. Lyle continued reading. This blessed presence within tells me by his mere presence that Christ is crowned. The writers of the New Testament make a chorus of sweet music on this chord, ringing out in clear tones the full notes of delight and joy. Luke's simple narrative sounds the note four times. Paul swells it out with a joyous fullness that rose in volume and intensity as his narrowing prison walls shut out more and more. The Lord lights, centres his upward gaze upon Jesus, far above all rule and authority and the power and domination in every name that is named, with all things in subjugation under his feet. John's special companion and working partner Peter makes his makes this note blend with the uh, dominant and minor chord of suffering for Christ's sake. The Christian Hebrew who wrote so eloquently to his fellow countrymen of immense superiority of Jesus was so modestly withheld his own name strikes this note five times with strong clear touch. His quotes that Eighth song. It was so wonderfully gives God's own ideal for man's mastery over all creation, and then he tells us that in Jesus the ideal will yet be fully realized, and that while the whole plan was has not yet fully um, worked out as it will, yet even now we see the Jesus who t- tasted death for everyone, crowned with glory and as part of the plan which he carried out in suffering, the extreme suffering of death. And our Lord Jesus himself talking out of the glory to the man who was his bosom companion on earth. Reserves as his last tender plea to us to live the overcoming life. This, quote, he that overcometh I will gave him to sit down with me in my throne and as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne end quote. and so we find out just what this word crown means Jesus was received in the upper world exalted glorified made to sit down at the father's right hand put far above all rule and authority with a name greater in the sweep of its power than any other. With all things put in absolute subjection under his feet, this is the simple direct uh, meaning of the sentence Christ's ground, you see. When it contrasts uh, the two faces of glory, cloud saw the face looking down and the face looking up. The one the downward face looked upon a cross, a man hanging there with a mocking crown of thorns without a breaking heart within, scolding priests, jeering crowds, deserting disciples, sneering soldiers, weeping women, heartbroken friends, a horror of darkness, a cave tomb under imperial seal, and blackest night settling down all. The other upward face looked upon a great burst of upper glory, the countless angels singing uh, swelling songs of worship, 
the wondrous winged cerebrum. That's the type of beast. Uh, it's hard to explain. Um, the redeemed hosts from Eden days uh, reverently bowing and exalting singing. The exquisitely soft green rainbowed circle throne, the father's face, once hidden but to be hidden now ever again. The shared seat on the father's throne. What a contrast that was. Here crucified the their crown, the crown, crucified on earth, one of the smaller globes of the universe. On the throne of the whole universe of globes, crowned. From the lowest depth to the one extreme height. From the hate's worst to love's best. From the love poured out for men to love and throne for those same men. Love triumphed, triumphant each time. On the cross and on the throne. What a contrast, what a coronation, what a welcome home to a throne. The music of a name. It is most intensely interesting to recall that, um, of course, that this just what the very word Christ means, the crown one. We sometimes get so used to a word that is easily to forget its real meaning. The word Christ has been used so generally for so many centuries as a name that we forget the original, originality, really. It, and its title, and not a name. And it still is a title, though used chiefly as a name. Someday the title meaning will overlap the, the name meaning. We may never cease thinking of it as a name, but there is time coming when events will make the title meaning so big as to clear overshadow our thought and use of it as a name. It helps to recall the distinctive meaning of the words we use for him, who talked amongst and was one of us. Jesus is his name. It belongs to the man. It belongs peculiarly to the 33 years and a bit more that he was here, even though not exclusively used in the way in the book. There's a rare threefold sweetness of meaning in the five-letter name. There is a there is the meaning of the old word lying within the name. Before it became a name, victory, victor, savior, victor, Jehovah, victor, and whatnot. There is the swing with him and murmur of music, glad, joyous music. And it's very less beginning as a common word. Then it has to come to stand holy for a personality. Really gentle, winsome, strong personality of a man. Bethlehem and Nazareth and of those crowded service days. And every memory of his personality sweetens and enriches the music of the old world, in the old world. And then the deepest significance, the richest rhythm, the sweetest melody come from the meaning, his experience, his life, his pressed, which is pressed into it. The sympathy, the suffering, the wilderness, the cross, the 
resurrection and all the experiences he went through. These give to uh, this victory word, Jesus, a meaning unknown before. They put the name Jesus actually above every name in, ex- in the experience. Uh, Spearing says tense conflict and sweeping victory it stands for. The threefold chording makes music never to be broken or forgotten. There is no name, quote, so sweet on earth, no name so sweet in heaven, the name before his wondrous birth, to Christ the Savior, given, end quote. Lord is a title, of course, and it's used, it was used of one who was a proprietor, an owner, or a master. It was commonly used as a title of honor for one in superior positions as a leader or teacher. And speaking of Jesus, it is coupled with the title Christ as an interchangeable word as as well as an, an additional title. But peculiarly, it is the personal title given Jesus by one who takes him as his own personal master while it still retains its broader meaning. But Christ, in peculiarity, the official title of Jesus, there is only one Christ. Lord is used of men. It is used of both the Father and the Holy Spirit, as well as of Jesus. But the name Christ is used of only one person and can only mean and uh, can't mean only that one. There could be only one Christ, as said. The word or its equivalent was used occasionally in the Old Testament in a narrow sense of the king of Israel, who was reverently spoken of as the Lord's anointed, that is, God's Messiah or Christ. But the one common thought of it among Hebrew people growing ever intenser as the Old Testament period merges into the time of the new was there um, was a one coming, the Messiah, the Christ, God's chosen, the one anointed and empowered to be their deliverer. The one question that sets all hearts a flutter about the rugged John of the deserts was this. Is he the Christ? In their thought, there was only one to whom the title belonged. And even so it is. Christ is the official title of the one chosen and anointed by God to be ruler over his Hebrew people and all over the races of earth and the universe. God's king to reign until all have been brought into full allegiance to the great loving father. The Christ is the crowned one, God's crowned one. The very word Christ tells us that Christ is crowned. Our great kinsman. There is an intensely interesting question also that crowds its way in here. It proves an immensely practical question too. Why was Christ crowned? We can say at once that this was his due. Was his due. 
he was given that which belonged to him in good right. He was reinstated in his former position with all the power and glory that were his before his errand to the earth. Then to this was his benediction after the shameful treatment on earth. Before the eyes of the all upper world, both loyal and disloyal eyes, this man whom earth hounded so shamelessly is vindicated. He is set right by the Father. But there is yet more than this. It is a more or sort that concerns us very closely, and it sets one's heart uh, a beating a bit faster. This crowning, this crowning was part of the plan, a plan which our earth is the center. It was the second great part of a plan of which suffering and dying were the first great part. Both were the sake of us men and our uh, earth home and our lower creation. This is the thing being emphasized in the second great paragraph of the Hebrews. Man was made the undermaster of earth and the lower creation, but lost, weakly surrendered his place of mastery. The new man came to recover for man what had been lost and to realize the original lost plan, you see. And so he became our brother, sharer of our flesh and blood, tempted like as we, perfected in his human character by the experiences he went through, then tasted to the bitter dregs, the death the, that belongs to our sin. And then followed that he was crowned with glory and honor. And so he rises to the place of mastery over all that belong that belongs to perfect man. So he brings all creation into a to the land sub, um, subjection, which is naturally happy, which is a naturally happy state. It is for earth's sake, for the race's sake. For the sake of our faithful companions and servants and the whole lower creation that Christ has been crowned. We can think more about the personal meanings to ourselves of his having died and risen again. We need to remember too this broader meaning. The dying and rising secures our salvation personally. The crowning and the reigning will work out the redemption of all nature and lower creation I meant to say and this in turn will mean much for men living on earth in the kingdom time for the race as a race this leads at once to another question that presses in what is the domain of the crown Christ if we take the crowning and the common meaning of the, that word, it means that there is some domain that Christ rules over. What is it that he is crowned over? And the answer is so sweeping as to seem far away and dreamy to us who are living 
on this sin-hurt earth. He is the crown ruler of the whole created universe and all intelligent beings in it. He has been placed over absolutely every rule and authority and power and dominion and not only in this present age but in the coming age. There is simply no limit in in extent to his dominion. Everything has been placed in subjugation to him and is now subject to his word and his alone. There is a striking passage in Philippians and it fits here. In speaking of the um, exaltation of Jesus Christ, Paul is careful to explain particularly that every knee would bow in heavens and on earth and under the earth and under the earth or in the world below. This threefold division is very striking. You see that heaven things are understood at once. Things are things of earth sphere. But there is a third world to be taken into account. The strange uncanny world of evil spirit beings in rebellion against God's authority. It is spoken of repeatedly as principalities um, and powers indicating numbers and organization, dignity and power. All of this is included in what has been placed under Christ's authority. Is Christ reigning now? But there is still another question that has been impatiently pushing underneath some time. And it also is so intensely practical one. Does this mean that Christ is actually ruling now over this dominion of his? How about the affairs on earth? Are all things here subject to him? Is this the way he would have uh, things go? And some of us think the evil spirits seem pretty free in their movements. This present order of things that were all living in the thick of. Is this the reign of the crown Christ? And some of us feel the stress of things so much that we can scarce keep patient for the poised answer to our questions. There are those and good earnest folk, there are two who tell us that Christ has come and is constantly coming more and more into our common life. The high ideals that are crowding for expression, the more spiritual conceptions of man and his brotherly relations, the constant striving toward the better civilization and the bettering of the condition of the poor and less fortunate, the increased recognition of men's rights in the complex industrial world, an increasing effort to correct evils by legislation, the great moral reforms that are sweeping aside the awful liquor curse, and loosening women's bonds and safeguarding young womanhood and children, the new aggressiveness and the missionary propaganda. And in much of the activity of the church, even the attempt to humanize and civilize the warfare that is in itself, it's it's stupidity. Stupidly savage and utterly inhuman is not all that is coming of Christ.
is not all this a coming of Christ and of the Christ spirit into our common life many ask and there is only one answer to such questions a strong empathetic emphatic I mean yes I, it surely is the Christ spirit that moves in all of us this is a coming of Christ and a blessing coming too there was nothing of this sort before the Christ spirit began to sweeten the world's life and there is none of it today except in those parts of the world where the Christ spirit influences life but there is a but it proves a blessed but this is only a crumb of two falling from the loaded table and he who judges Christ by these crumbs, only wholesome and toothsome as they are, will have a very skimpy conception of Christ. All of this sort of thing that has come, has come very slowly. It has had to fight through and, and in every step of the way that it has come. Its coming has been opposed stubbornly, maliciously, viciously every inch of the road as only those know who are in the thick of the struggle or these reforms panting for breath sometimes it is as though a few whiffs of wholesome life-giving air have breathed through the cracks and crevices of the breastworks and fortifications fortifications of evil and which all our common life seems entrenched, entrenched, I mean. But the fortifications are still there, I say. If the sweet, wholesome breathing in which cracks and crannies has been so blessed, what would it be if the forces of evil were clean removed from the scene? And the Christ Spirit became the whole atmosphere, breathed fully and freely without restraint, with no bad draughts, and no, in, in no countercurrents to guard the fight against. It would seem like a strange sort of a kingdom, huh? If the present is even a gradual coming of, coming in of the kingdom, we would seem to be having a new strange sort of a Christ if it present is a sample of his sort of reigning where it may well be thoughtfully doubted if ever there was such a condition of feverish unrest in all parts of the world as today it's most difficult to put our finger on a single spot of the world map that is not being torn up uptorn by umbrace in some shape or another. Either actual war or constant and studious preparation for war actually never ceases. And it is difficult to say which is worse of the two. The actual war reveals more terrible to our eyes and ears the awful cost and treasure and precious human blood spilled without stint. The never ceasing preparation of for war seems actually to cause more, actually. 
in the immense treasure involved in the blood too given out and not on an occasional battlefield but in the continual battle of daily life to meet the terrible drain of taxation it costs immensely more there is less of the tragic for the news headings but not the wit less but not a witness, I say. Rather, much more. Any slow suffering, the pinched lives, the awful temptations to barter character for bread. Then there is the continual seething unrest in the industrial world. The protests, sometimes so strange and startling against social and political conditions, the feverish greed for gold and land and precision, the intense pace of all our modern life, the abandonment of home and home ideals, the terrific attack against our young womanhood, the political plot which gathers into itself all these things never quits boiling or boiling over in some part of the world. Now here, now there. It, it seems like the greatest achievement of diplomacy when here and there it can be kept from boiling clean over or at least made to boil over less. It would seem indeed like a queer sort of kingdom. If this is a sample some of us would have less heart in repeating one petition of the whole old daily prayer. And Christ would seem to have quite, quite changed his uh, spirit and character if this is a result of his coming. The greatest patience, the greatest of patience. And that great simple truth is this, the truth that in the strange mix-up of life, we easily lose sight of this. Christ has not yet taken possession of his domain. A part of it still remains to be possessed. Quote, we see not yet all things subjugated, subjected to him, end quote. We are living in the not yet interval between the crowning and the actual reigning. We are living on the not yet possessed part of his domain. And a question that comes hot and quick from my lips, even though with an attempt to at an attempt at to uh, subdue reverence in this quote, why does he not take possession the and untangle the snarl, the right, the wrongs, and bring in the true rational order of things, end quote. And all the long waiting and soreness of heart and over the part that touches one's own life, most closely shortness of breath in the intensity, in the intensity, in the intensity of the struggle, underscore the word why. And the answer to that impatient question reveals all the fresh all afresh the greatness of the love of our Christ. His greatness is shown most in his patience. But patience is one of the things we men on this 
old earth and women, of course, don't know. It's one of the unknown quantities to us. It, uh, it can be known only by knowing God. For patience is love at its best. Patience is God at his best. His is the patience that sees all and feels all of the tender heart that broken once under the load, yet waits steadily, waits then, waits just a bit longer. And this he runs the risk of being misunderstood, then in their stupidity constantly make uh, constantly mistake strong patience for weakness or indifference or a lack of a gripping purpose. And God is misunderstood in this, even by his trusting children. But even so, the subject to be gained is so great and so dear. Christ, Christ's heart, that he waits strongly, waits with a patience beyond our comprehension. Waits just a bit longer, always just a bit longer. There is, there are two parts to the answer. Jesus, the Christ, is giving man the fullest opportunity. He never interferes with man's right of free choice. Man is free to do as he chooses. Every possible means is used to influence him to choose right, but the choice itself is always left to man. The present is man's opportunity. The initiative of action on the earth is altogether in man's hand. All of God's power is at the man's disposal, but man must reach out and take this long stretch but waiting time for man's sake that he may have foolish opportunity and the long suffering of God would woo men. When the length of opportunity comes to an end, it will be only because things have gotten into a such different shape into such an awful fix that a length for man's sake, Christ will step into the direct action of earth once again. He will take the leadership of earth into his own hands, even while still leaving each man free in his individual choice. This is the first part of the answer. The waiting is that man may have foolish opportunity then Christ has a greater hunger for willing hearts. No words are strong enough to tell his longing for a free, glad, joyous surrender to his mastery. He could so easily end the present conflict, but he waits that men bring him the allegiance to his own lives, given in their own glad, gracious, voluntary accord. He has, he was a volunteer savior. He longs for that love that is bubbling out of a free, full heart. The best love is the only given freely, without any compulsion of any sort, save only love sweet compelling. He wants that he gives the best. He wants what he gives the best. And so he waits patiently, waits just a bit longer. This is the second bit of the answer. The long delay spells out the hunger as well as the patience of God's heart. The divine husbandman 
His patiently waiting and sending harm, warm sun and soft rains and fragrant dews while waiting. Quote, the husbandman waiteth. The husbandman, why? For the heart of the servant who hears not his cry. The husbandman waiteth. He waiteth for what? What for? For the heart of one servant to love him yet more. The husbandman waiteth. Long patient patience hath he, but he waiteth in hunger. Oh, is it for thee? And we are going to stop right there. Next time I read this, we will be reading, taking with your life. I'm glad you have joined me in this reading, for it greatly explains the meaning of Christ. And I hope you'll be able to come with me again on talking. Thinking, oh my goodness, I'm mixing up my title of my own show, Thinking While Talking. And I hope you enjoyed and learned something. And you can pass it on to your little friends and girlfriends and father, daughter, maybe talk either to your hamster or whatnot. But I hope you learned something. I hope I made you fall asleep. I'm also while you sleep, you're self-consciously listening and then implanting in your mind the greatness of what Christ in Jesus' name is. And I hope you have a blessed day. Bye.